Welcome, welcome, curious souls, to the Macabre Emporium, your sanctuary for the unusual, the mysterious, and the appalling. Step through our cryptic doorway into a world where secrets whisper and enigmas come to life. I'm David. And I'm Sarah. Together, we're your custodians of the macabre, guiding you through tales that defy the ordinary. Discover the untold stories, from lesser-known cases of true crime to the bizarre events that captivate us. Join us on a journey to the shadows where the mainstream fades and the extraordinary beckons. So whether you seek the bizarre, the eerie, or the chillingly obscure, you're in for a treat here at Macabre Emporium. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 52. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome! Welcome! So getting ready for this week's episode, I came up with this idea, and I don't understand why I didn't come up with this sooner. So starting this week of January 24th, when this episode comes out, I'm starting a new fun facts section of uh, quick hits, I guess you could call them, or whatever. Just little fun tiddly bits of, like, on this day in history thing. Like, some people have, like, a desk calendar where Mm -hmm. it's got you know, a joke or something on it. So starting this week. So for our first one, Ted Bundy was executed at the age of 42 in 1989 after confessing to killing 30 women in the United States. Oh no. I know. The first Boy Scout troop was organized in England by Lord Robert Baden Powell in 1908. The first canned beer was sold in 1935 by Kruger Brewing Company. In 1848, Gold was discovered near Coloma, California by James W. Marshall starting the California Gold Rush. And for the last one for this week, model and actress Sharon Tate was born in 1943. And for those that might not remember, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family. She was. Mm -hmm. That's why I selected this one as our fifth one, because we got two true crummy ones in there. Mm -hmm. So what do you have this week for us, Sarah? Uh, I have true crime. Shocker. Yeah, but I think you'll like this one. Well, she held up her end of the bargain of being held to be back this week. Yep. You can let go now. All right. What do you got? History. Oh, really? Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) This was a wild ride for me to read through and then... Yeah, I could tell the amount of times you took your headset off and put them back on. Right. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Right. And then I wasn't halfway through it and going through another source that completely changed the whole narrative. So I had to go back and change all of it. I didn't have time to pause on this one and find something else to fill in with it. Mm-hmm. So, which I mean, you saw the the consequences of that finding me asleep at my desk trying to fix all of it. Yeah. So are you ready to get started? I am. Are you? Yep. Okay. Tamara Samsonova was born on February 5th, 1947 in Uzhur, Russia, which is the largest territory they have. Mm -hmm. There's really no background information on her, her upbringing, her family, nothing until like she graduates high school. Okay. So I have nothing to tell you about her prior to then. She went to the Moscow State Linguistic University after graduating to work on her undergrad classes. When she finished with all that, she moved herself to St. Petersburg, Russia to work for a travel agent. Oh, so you're pretty much putting us on our radar that one person from Russia to listen to us again. <laughs> Hello, pony boy, if it's you. Yeah, this was the only, <laughs> the only person I, I made this for, for sure. <laughs> okay. It's here that she met and fell in love with a man named Alexei Samsonova. It took them little to no time at all to move in together. 
They wound up sharing an apartment. They wound up sharing an apartment and actually lived in the same apartment for three decades. Their neighbors said they were a very likable couple that were friendly and super accommodating to any neighbor that needed anything from them. There was never one complaint filed against them, like as an individual, by themselves, or as a couple. Unfortunately, the husband, Alexi, went missing in 2005 after being married to Tamara for 30 years and living in the same apartment. He just, poof. Mm -hmm. The St. Petersburg police came to the apartment to check on Tamara after Alexi's disappearance. She had been living alone for a while already at this point, and they wanted to go back over, like, what had happened prior to Alexi coming up missing. Tamara stated that Alexi had run off with another woman. She was in denial, and she said she didn't care either way, which I don't know why she wouldn't care, but okay. She also didn't make it clear whether she found out about the other woman before he left or after he left. So, I mean, she could have been in communication with him afterwards, found out before and kicked him out mm -hmm. or she found out in him leaving like we don't know the police had no reason not to believe her there were no signs of a struggle or anything no complaints from the neighbors about you know loud arguments anything like that so they kind of just shook her hand and walked away closing the case and allowing Tamara to move on with her life after months of alexi being gone Tamara grew pretty lonely i mean she was already older at this point she thought having a friend or companion would make her less lonely. So she decided in 2001 that she was going to share her apartment and sublet it. She found someone interested in renting her space. It was a middle-aged man named Velodia. Though he didn't stick around very long, he left just a few weeks after moving in, saying that Tamara was not his his hospitable. <laughs> hospitable. He wouldn't be the only person to leave shortly after arriving in her home. Tamara's apartment was sublet several more times, all to men, all of which left due to some sort of falling out with Tamara. The once friendly and accommodating neighbor that no one ever complained about would start getting complaints filed against her. Just like a mouthy old lady in this house. <sighs> we have many complaints against her too, yes. Neighbors started complaining about hearing loud banging, screaming, and near-violent disagreements coming from Tamara and the people she was subletting her apartment to. Sergei Potyavin met with Tamara and decided he would go get, go ahead and rent the apartment space. He was also not there long. He was gone after just a few weeks, and it was strange how it happened. Like, he was there, and then he just wasn't. Like, all of his shit's gone, he's gone, nobody saw him leave, nothing. No one knew much about him other than he was from a different city, so everyone just assumed that he packed up his stuff and went back home. But that wasn't the case. Well, obviously not, because he just suddenly disappears. Well, yeah, it's, but he could have moved in, like, the middle of the night. Right, but to... I really doubt that. Well, you don't know. We don't know yet. But it would actually take several more years for this to come to light. In 2015, Tamara was 70 years old and absolutely loving the life that she had. She was retired, and with that retirement, she was able to utilize all of her extra time for things that she liked doing. One thing that she wanted to do was renovate her home. She also knew that renovations would take a while to be done, so she had asked some of her friends to come help her do it, to get things sped up, I guess. Right. One of her closest friends had asked one of their friends that lived on the same street as Tamara if she would be all right with Tamara staying there while the renovations were going on. So this woman is Valentina Ulanova. 
And she was 79 years old at the time. And she was also lonely. I mean, she wasn't married. You know, she lived by herself. So she kind of thought, hey, this would be a good idea. She's around my age. You know, I'll have company and somebody to help with the daily household chores. Right. Tamara thought this would be a good idea, too, because she would also have a companion. It was a really good plan in theory until it wasn't. It didn't take long for Tamara to start showing Valentina who she truly was. Arguments began between the two. Banging could be heard. Not that kind of banging. Not the brown chicken brown kind. Hey, I'm not going to judge. But like, you know, shit getting thrown around. (laughs) And loud noises became a constant in Valentina's home. Tamara kept Valentina in the dark on how the renovations were going. But beyond that, regardless of the renovations, Tamara straight up showed no intent on leaving Valentina's house. None. She was content and extremely comfortable there. And she's just kind of like, fuck it. I'm staying. Due to all those things, it's safe to say that the tension in the house was thick. Like the (laughs) ICC, that shit was thick. And it continued getting thicker until it finally snapped. Tamara and Valentina began to argue about who was supposed to be doing the dishes that day. And that argument escalated to the point that Tamara felt the need to handle the problem accordingly. So we're going to fast forward a couple of days. And there was a young couple walking um, their dog and noticed their dog started to just act really strange, like completely out of character. Every time they walked their dog past this pond, the dog would go berserk, like barking, trying to run down there, but it can't. Obviously, they're holding its leash. This is the only place that the dog did this. The couple was curious, so they walked down to see if there was, like, another dog down there or, like, what the hell their dog is freaking out wanting. Right. And they found it. They found a ton of small plastic bags full of human remains, all of which were wrapped up in a shower curtain. The couple immediately called the police and alerted them to what they found, and the police came. When they showed up, they saw everything they needed to and went into immediate investigation mode. They questioned people in the neighborhood, and one thing that stuck out to them was that they were told that Tamara had been seen taking out garbage bags at, like, a stupid time of night. Like, in the middle of the night. Yeah. This was unusual behavior and timing for her. And nearby CCTV footage actually caught all of her trips with garbage. To the pond. Well, they caught her with the garbage. The police then went to Valentina's house to question Tamara. She remained cooperative and invited them in to look, you know, look around and see what you see. Probably not the smartest thing to do on her part, (laughs) because as soon as they walked in, there was evidence fucking everywhere. <laughs> like, right. Everywhere. A stick figure men drawn on the <clears throat> walls of blood and <laughs> yeah. all sorts of other stupid shit. And there's a head hanging from the ceiling. I don't know. Mm. No, I'm just making shit up. Police found blood splatters on the floor of the bathroom and the kitchen. They also noticed that the shower curtain was missing. The team of police headed back to where Tamara was to confront her, but she stopped up in their tracks before they had a chance to say anything to her. And she confessed to killing Valentina. Tamara told the police that when she went to a nearby pharmacy that she picked up a prescription for Phenazepam, which is Russia's version of a schizophrenia medication. And it wasn't just a couple of pills. Like, 
It was an entire bottle of 50. She said in an interview later on, I came home and put the whole pack finazepam, which is the 50 pills, into her salad. I woke up at 2 a.m. She was lying on the floor, so I started cutting her into pieces. So that day, Valentina had come home, smelled dinner cooking on the stove, and saw like a giant bowl of fresh salad sitting on the table waiting to be eaten. And she was starving, so she just went ahead and dove right in. But, you know, she she didn't really get what was happening or right. what was going you to happen. I wouldn't have suspected that. Like, that's bad, just trying to poison me. Yeah. Because anytime I look at a salad, that's not my first thought. What, to dive right in? Well, that and plus that <laughs> someone's going to try and kill me by poisoning with, my salad. With your salad, yeah, of all the things. Especially when there's a giant pot of something brewing on the stove. But yeah, Valentina didn't realize what she had done until it was too late and everything went black. Nor would she realize that Tamara was just getting started. A little after 2 a.m., Tamara had picked up a hacksaw and various kitchen knives and chopped Valentina up into numerous small pieces. She stated... It was hard for me to carry her to the bathroom. She was fat and heavy, so I did everything in the kitchen where she was laying. All of this happened while Valentina was still alive. She wasn't dead from the pills. She was just knocked out from the pills. After dismembering her, Tamara gathered the parts and pieces and packed them all into small plastic bags. She then boiled Valentina's head and fingers in a saucepan, which at the time she did in an attempt to conceal Valentina's identity. She then wrapped all the small bags containing her former roommate in the shower curtain, drug him down the stairs into the pond where she dumped him. While she made numerous trips to the pond, she didn't realize she was leaving a trail of blood behind her all the way from the stairs to the pond. She was unable to carry Valentina's hips and legs beyond the neighbor's, like, yard, Mm -hmm. so she just left him there. (laughs) She then returned home as if nothing had happened. With all that out in the open, she was arrested on the spot. So she told them all of that when they confronted her in the house that had all the evidence pointing against her anyways. Two days later, she had a court hearing. Tamara didn't show any resistance to the police, the jailers, or the court attendees. She remained calm and claimed that she handled the situation that she was in appropriately. She was actually, like, blowing kisses to the cameras that were in the courtroom, and I have pictures that will be added to the the Facebook post and everything. Yeah, she's like blowing kisses and she just looked so happy. Totally content with where she was. She also showed absolutely no remorse for killing the person that let her stay with her for free. When the judge ordered Tamara to be held in jail during the course of the rest of the investigation and trial, she literally applauded. Like, she was happy about it. Just like, yay, free room and board from now on. (laughs) Right. The biggest shock that came from Tamara confessing to killing Valentina was when she also confessed to killing many more, and all of them deliberately. With the willing confession she gave on many more murders out in the open, police decided to expand their investigation. The police went back to her house and went over each room better than they had done previously. This time they found a diary written by Tamara. She had written it in three different languages. So she read, like, wrote in it in English, in Russian, and in German. In the diary, she detailed at least 11 other murders that she had committed. The people that examined it said that she wrote everything down in it, like, to the point that it appeared she was just putting stuff in there so that she didn't remember 
things throughout her day. Like she had just simple shit in there, like uh, what her dream was the night before, what she ate for dinner, what she had for breakfast, like that just mundane day to day shit. So it's like, dear diary, after I killed Robert after my short <laughs> breakfast of eggs and toast. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But outside of the mundane everyday stuff that she had written in there, she also had all of the murders documented. But it wasn't just the murders that she highlighted. She also wrote about cannibalism. This was backed up by the fact that she had cooked Valentina's head and fingers And there were numerous organs missing from the body, none of which were found in any of the the small plastic bags. So it's safe to assume she probably ate them. Right. Trying to identify that. Yeah. Yeah. She's trying to eat them to identify the bodies. Like, oh, this (laughs) fingerprint tastes like Robert. (laughs) Fingerprint. Trying to hide the identity of the bodies by eating the fingerprints and what other other pieces you said she was cooking. Yeah. Once the diary became public and the media picked it up, it turned into just complete media frenzy. Everyone that reported or was interviewed by a news channel was shocked that the sweet little old lady could be such a monster. She was dubbed the Granarippy. Granarippy. The Gran. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Granarippy. God damn it! I can't. All that is staying in. She was dubbed the Granny Ripper. And there she goes. She got a family. <laughs> as a play on Jack the Ripper. Right. She was also called Baba Yaga because, you know, she was an old little witch lady that would cook and eat her victims. Right. But she wasn't living in an apartment building that we couldn't get up and walk walk away. True that. But the person, not the house. <laughs> During the investigation, police looked into all the murders that happened and were written about in the diary. They found a common theme between them, which I think I already kind of said earlier. Uh, Most of the victims were from different towns. Most of them had no one searching for them or anyone that would report them missing. So just completely alone, single people. For example, Sergei Potvayan, that quickly left in 2003... Turns out she had poisoned him, dismembered him, and disposed of him, just like she did Valentina. But nothing was led back to Tamara. He wasn't from the area, and they couldn't figure out who the torso actually actually belonged to. But after 12 years, the police finally had their answers of who he was and who had killed him and chopped him up. It was Tamara. It was in her diary. The diary also made mention of uh, Volodya who I spoke about earlier. Everyone assumed this was her first roommate and after the disappearance of Alexei. This is the one exception to all the murders. Velodia was found alive. Okay. He was able to tell the police what happened and that he was admitted to the hospital because of being poisoned, which he assumed happened while he was out eating at a restaurant. It didn't automatically... He didn't put Tamara in the mix at all. Right. But it was her that poisoned him with the same same type of pill. So until the police talked to him, he had no idea that, that what happened to him was because of Tamara and not, like, food poisoning. Right. So he's the second person to be identified through that diary. More stories from the diary came out and everyone assumed Tamara killed her husband, Alexi. While she did document her life in the diary, from the mundane to the murders that she admitted to... She didn't have anything about Alexi in there. Nothing. 
Even without him being mentioned, the police were still suspicious and started investigating his whereabouts, but nothing turned up. Now comes the question, why would this little old lady do all of this heinous shit in the first place? She barely knew her victims. Most of them were from out of town. She had no vendetta against them. Yet she purposely poisoned and killed, chopped them into pieces, and ate parts of them for the smallest reasons, like disagreeing over who was going to do the dishes. While she was being held in jail, a couple of different psychological evaluations were performed on her, and the results showed that she had severe mental health issues. No shit, right? No, who would have thought? (laughs) She claimed that a monster in her head forced her to do everything that she had done. She told CNN... I'm haunted by a maniac upstairs who forced me to kill. It's believed Tamara had to have been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic in the past since she had access to that prescription that she was able to go and pick up, which is what was used, like I said, to poison all of her victims. And she herself had been hospitalized three times because of, I guess, for lack of a better word, overdosing on these meds. So she poisoned herself three times. It came to light that her apartment did not need renovations done. In fact, there were no renovations done at all, and there were no people helping her. She just wanted to get out of the house. Okay, so... She was bored. Couldn't have just fucking walked out? (laughs) (laughs) Police also found out that Tamara was into black magic and the occult, and automatically assumed that the killings were done as a ritual. With that, the theory also comes into play with her cooking and eating parts of the people's. Neighbors confirmed that Tamara was obsessed with serial killers that ate their victims. Her favorite one, care to, care to guess? What year was this again? Uh, like 2000s. So, gonna guess Jeffrey Dahmer? Nope. No, well, he couldn't be because of Russia. I'm sure the news wouldn't travel that far. No. True crime popularity through the internet like it does now. Andre Chikatilo. It's her yeah. favorite. She was actually compared to him, and that absolutely made her fucking day. Oh, good lord. But for her, like, hearing that was like somebody handing her the holy grail. Right. She was so happy about that. I'm like, oh, dude, he's... Eh, we're not getting on him. Tamara stated the reason behind her killing all of these people, and that was simply because she wanted to. Right. That's what she said. Because I wanted to. Yeah, just like Ted Bundy that died She's... on this day in 1989. <laughs> She said she was sad and lonely, and going to prison would be a happy retreat for her. She'd have people around her, food handed to her. She also said that she waited for the day that she got arrested and had been preparing and waiting for that moment for over 20 years. So if you're winning and ready and wanting this, don't you think probably committing crimes faster could have put you in this spot? But she probably also wanted that notoriety part of it, too. Probably. So this is a quote directly from her. It's actually two quotes, but they go together. So I'm just going to read them as one. She said, I have nowhere else to live. I'm a very old person and I put the whole matter to rest deliberately. I have thought 77 times about it and then decided that I must be in prison. I will die there and the state will probably bury me. I was getting ready for this court action for dozens of years. It was all done deliberately. There is no way to live. With this last murder, I close the chapter. Yeah, because, I mean, if you wanted to go to prison so bad, why didn't you just do all that shit in front of Big Brother like that the first time instead of killing multiple other people? Yeah. Even with her confession and her confessional, which was the diary, 
Tamara was labeled unfit to stand trial and is currently still alive and living in a psychiatric hospital in Kazan, Russia. Alexei was never found. Easy to assume that she probably killed him the way she did everybody else. And along with the missing Alexei, Valentina's head and fingers were never found. No one's ever found them. Could you imagine living in Russia and like digging up a spot to make a new like flower bed? (laughs) You find a skull and fingers. Like I would like I had told you. This to me when I read all the information was like Dorothea Puente meets Omaima Nelson. Right. A little bit fucked up from both. At least it wasn't Thanksgiving dinner this time. Right. And I had this stupid thought in the middle of that of an old commercial for, I think it was like ADT. Uh-huh. Of like them trying to advertise their security systems. And it's like one house next door doesn't have one, have the security system the other one does. But the one without has like all these big giant neon signs that says we, we have no security or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, and all yeah. I'm thinking of is like something in around her windows like a murderer lives here. <laughs> For some reason, because yeah. I'm in a conduit of nonsense, and all that like popped in my fucking head. But she wasn't. She wasn't in the open with what she right, was doing. I get it, but that's what I was. It just came in my head about how bad she wanted to go to prison and what. Yeah, that whole like, thing is just stupid to me. Like, why? Right. Why, why not just slit somebody's throat in front of a cop and fucking be done with it? Right. You know, but it's like a Kemper. He's. The same way, but even though he was released once, but once he got into prison for life, obviously. He was not getting back out. Right. He actually enjoys this whole structure of prison life and like never wanted to come back out after that. No. Career career criminal, I guess. Well. It is what it is. Yep. But yeah, that's my that's my case for today. Good job. Because you had over a week to come back in with a swing, I guess you could say. So for yeah. being gone for a week. Yeah. What you got for us this so week? So I have history, and this is kind of a dark history thing that's probably doesn't get nearly as much attention that it should. Uh-huh. Because of the treatment of immigrants on the southern border of the United States in the ni- late 1910s. And currently. And ties currently into narratives being spun on national news stations yeah so what this episode is this week is the it's um the infestation of migrant mexico uh, workers from mexico okay i thought you said it was bathtub riots. that's part the bathtub riots is part of this but oh okay it, once i started looking in to more than the bathtub riots and how far this extended in that's like i had to include like all the way up to the end because this is just was like what the fuck so with all that said, like, there is one section that I'm going to read word for word as it was written out in a telegram. Mm-hmm. They are not my words. I will kind of struggle with this, and I asked a couple other podcast hosts about it that deal with history topics okay. on how they handle these kind of things. So there's a part in here with a the telegram. They're not my words. This is how this telegram was written in these times. And I wanted to include it this way to give paint a better picture of how people were treated in these times. And I'm assuming you don't condone what's said. You no, absolutely. don't agree with what's said. Absolutely not. It's not like... the better, I can, There's no other better way to put it. It's not like a full racial slur, but the way it's where it is just like... Nah, I don't know about that. Yeah. So. Okay. Thanks for the warning. Yeah. Anytime I do history episodes and I read things like this that are related to it, I mean, 
if it's a full racial slur, I'm not going to say it because it's not in me and in my vocabulary to say it. I will use like a first letter of that. Mm -hmm. We've all heard the words before and whatever. You know what the word is. I can't say it. Like there's one that I've deleted out of my vocabulary because of your job. Yeah. And I even get on people that I work with about like, don't fucking use that word around me. Like, why? What's the big deal? And then I explain it to them and then they're like, then they try their best not to. Hmm. And this is also a great example of like those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it kind of things. Okay. So if you Google historical events between 1914 and 1918, more than likely you'll find only results of World War One. But at some point in time with all of our search histories, I came across three words. And of course, and these three words were more than enough to catch my interest. Hidden in the shadows of the many battles and turning points of the war to end all wars, you will find the bathtub riots. In 1914, the same year that World War I would start, Mexico was in the middle of a revolution to overthrow its current dictatorship and become a constitutional republic like the United States. Mexico's revolutionary Pancho Villa would not give up his fights and execute border skirmishes. This would cause President Woodrow Wilson to mobilize troops into Mexico to protect the interests of the United States. But with the events unfolding in Europe, he would be gr- he would grow more concerned about World War One and withdrew the troops in 1914. Soon after, between 1915 and 1917, typhus broke out in Mexico City and began to spread. Typhus is that like ty- typhoid? I will get to that. Okay. So my first reading of this typhoid fever did come to mind, but they are actually different. Typhus fever is caused by the bacteria Rickettsia, which is transferred to humans through anthropods like lice, ticks, mites, or fleas, with symptoms of fever, headaches, and rash, and the usual onset of typhus is usually between one to two weeks after exposure, and can be associated with poor sanitary conditions. Typhus today has been stopped mostly due to modern hygiene practices and is now classified as a rare disease. Typhoid fever is caused by the bacteria Salmonella, Typhi, which is related to salmonella that causes food poisoning. Typhoid fever can be onset in one to two weeks as well after ingestion. Symptoms of typhoid fever include fever as high as 104.9 degrees Fahrenheit, headaches, weakness and fatigue, muscle aches, sweating, dry cough, loss of appetite, weight loss, stomach pain, diarrhea or constipation, rash, swollen stomach from enlarged liver or spleen. Damn. Risks of getting typhoid fever are living or traveling through areas where typhoid fever has been established, and this can be prevented by vaccination. During this outbreak in Mexico City, and it was spreading, where in the United States, Thomas Callaway Lay Jr., a prominent attorney, was elected mayor of El Paso, Texas. He was described to be obsessed with cleanliness and then probably got the best of him later on with the word of typhus on the rise in Mexico. He would go as far as wearing silk boxers as he was informed by his friend, named Dr. Klutz, no first name was given, that typhus lice does not stick to silk. And also, unfortunately, at the same time this is going on, the eugenics movement is actually on the rise in the United States. Mm-mm. So you can't help but wonder if he had any role in his, if this had any role in his beliefs that Mexicans migrating into the United States in more of a, like, us versus them state of mind, as movies at the times would refer to Mexicans as greasers in titles and depicted them as unclean and of lower intelligence. As that entire movement was gaining popularity in these times, for those who aren't aware of what eugenics is, eugenics is a belief in creating a genetic and morally superior and morally superior population or race by controlled breeding. These beliefs would warrant stricter control of immigration, leaving it to health inspectors to deem who was worthy to enter the United States. So this is 
like what was happening to the Irish immigrants in New York City at Ellis Island. This is the same thing as going on at the same time in El Paso, Texas. Okay. For the Mexicans entering on the southern border. One of the major travel points between Mexico and the United States would be the Santa Fe Bridge between Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and El Paso, Texas. And El Paso, Texas would be called the Ellis Island of the Southwest. Mm. In March of 1916, Thomas Lee led a campaign using the guise of sanitary betterment of El Paso to inspect every house in the prominent Mexican neighborhood of Chihuahua. If lice were detected in these homes... The residents were forced to take a bath of vinegar and kerosene to kill the lice, shave their heads, and all clothing would be burned. The possible total number of cases of typhus found out of the 5,000 rooms inspected, only two were found, along with a single case of measles, rheumatism, TB, and chickenpox. Out of 5,000 rooms checked. During this campaign, hundreds of adobe homes would be destroyed with the plans to replace them with American brick-style homes. However, the residents of the Chihuahua neighborhood would eventually take up arms and post snipers to keep the demolition crews that were ordered to come to destroy these homes out of the neighborhood. Lee's response was shoot to kill according to the El Paso Herald after ordering health inspectors to carry rifles after hearing about these snipers. And the offensive force would actually also hide on the other side of the Rio Grande River with these neighbor, uh, the, people, these na- the people of this neighborhood shooting back at them to keep them out. Which, I guess, really warranted because you get, you're coming in and destroying all these homes for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like, this is one of those things that I stayed up all night to fix because of a video I used for an outline. Mm-hmm. Painted it as, like, he just came in and just wanted to destroy these shit because he was so paranoid over this typhus. And it took, all it takes is, like, one link to completely change a whole narrative. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those points. His fear went as far as the inmates inside the jail of El Paso were carrying lice, and this is where 27 inmates would be burned alive from the chemical baths that inmates had to put themselves and their clothing in. Around 3.30 in the afternoon, for some unknown reason, a match was struck near these vape, you know, these kerosene vapors. Mm-hmm. There's the historians that have looked into this deeply. They cannot find an explanation why this match was lit. My best guess is during these times, nobody has a cigarette lighter. You don't really know how dangerous and flammable, well, they probably do, but just absentmindedly went to go light a cigar, their pipe, their cigarette or whatever, and not realizing these bass are off-gassing all these flammable vapors in this mm-hmm. room is my guess is what happened here. So this match is lit at 3.30, the vapors ignite, and killing 27 men, and the newspapers called it the jail holocaust as 19 of the 27 men of those that, were, that died were Mexican or Mexican-American. Even after that tragedy of the jail fire, Thomas Lee pushed on with his fears of cleansing El Paso from lice-carrying possible typhus. He would then send a telegram to Surgeon General Rupert Blue with plans to build a quarantine camp to hold immigrants for 10 to 14 days before allowing them to enter through El Paso. And this is where my warning comes into play. His telegram reads as follows. Hundreds of dirty, lousy, destitute Mexicans arriving at El Paso daily. Willingly, undoubtedly bring and spread typhus unless a quarantine is in place at once. At once, the city of El Paso, backed by its medical board, state, federal, and militia officials here feel that the government should put on a quarantine. Please investigate and advise me in this necessary to avoid typhus epidemic. So, like as I said, I wanted to read that word for word just to give you a better understanding of how Mexicans and the Hispanic culture was treated in these times. Mm-hmm. 
I don't condone those. Those are not even my beliefs. Even though one of the things I did read about Thomas Lee was in the 1920s, he did join the Ku Klux Klan because in those times it was a way to, you know, get a step up in the political game or the business world. But they would use it as the guys to actually what they're really doing. He attended one meeting, found out what they're really about, left. And ever since then, he actually condoned the Klan and was set forth against keeping them out, out of El Paso, Texas. And he was also an advisor for a government official at one point before he even became mayor of El Paso. Hmm. Dr. B.J. Lloyd, El Paso's public health officer, felt this was a bit too extreme and the possibility of a typhus outbreak was extremely low and opposed this quarantine camp, but suggested opening delousing plants instead. The federal government also agreed that a quarantine camp wasn't needed, but they did send $6,000 or $134,000 today in 2024 to build these delousing plants. So this is where I'm getting into some of the process of what's going on. This is not all how it all started off with, but I wanted to keep it together mm-hmm. of the entire process. Yeah. So men, women, and children would be separated and funneled into three separate buildings. And this is all under the bridge before they can enter the United States. Those deemed as second-class citizens had to strip naked. Their clothes would be sent to a steam dryer and then fumigated in a gas room with hydrogen cyanide. Inspectors would check each person's body, including their private areas, for lice. If lice were found on men, they would have their heads shaved along with any other body hair and the clippings would be burned. Whereas if it was found on women, their hair would be soaked in vinegar and kerosene and wrapped in a towel for at least 30 minutes, and also still have to take the vinegar and kerosene baths for all men, women, and children. Now, I tried to find what kind of effects this had on the body, or if there was any descriptors of what it felt like. I couldn't find anything on it. I'm sure it wasn't good. Oh, I, I know, but, you know, I just wanted to try and include words of people that had to deal with it to get a better idea what it was like. Hmm. But I could not find anything, but I'm sure it burned, you know, Oh, uh, yeah, it had points. to. These steps would actually be repeated until no lice would be re- would be detected. Once past this step, they would then again be bathed, but this time with soap and kerosene. After this, they would redress in their sanitized clothing if the steam dryers didn't melt any of it, and be given a vaccination, and then would receive paperwork stating name, age, sex, date of inspection, and how many children they had with them under the age of a 10. From here, they would proceed to the immigration offices to be examined once again here their eyelids would be checked for trachoma, a.k.a. pink eye, conjuvitis. Some would be asked to be salt, simple children's puzzles, basic math equations, and few and to write a few sentences to check literacy. So all the puzzles and literacy test type things, those were added later mm-hmm. on in the 1920s with stricter immigration regulations that would come on. They would have to go through this process every eight days to continuing the entering the United States if they were just working there. And this is like right on the border. So, you know, there's people of Ciudad Juarez that are making this trip daily just to come and work. But those who were looking for extra money would endure this process multiple times and resell the tickets to those who didn't want to go through this the, the infestation process. So there's a will, there's a way to make money. Somebody will always find it. Of course, but, especially if it's exploiting people that have already been super exploited. Right. But these people that are going willingly going through the whole process again to get a second ticket to resell to somebody that wants to skip past it. Another thing that was added later on in in an immigration reform bill, the U.S. Department of Health would actually end up writing 
out a list of those immigrants can be turned away for these reasons. Imbeciles, idiots, feeble-minded persons, physical defects, pathological liars, vagrants, cranks, and persons with abnormal sexual instincts, a.k.a. Sluts. No. <laughs> no, no. You know, homosexual men and women. Mm-hmm. People afflicted with loath, loath, loathsome or dangerous contagious diseases. I mean, that's like a given, but what's going on is a bit of a fucking extreme. I mean, we lived through those times like that. Mm-hmm. But this was not even in those kind of times and this was going on. By the end of January 1917, men and women would soon to begin f- to be fed up with these practices, especially women after rumors were going around that pictures of their naked bodies would be shuttered in the bars in El Paso by inspectors along with the fear of being burned alive after what happened in the jail the previous year. On the morning of January 28th, 17-year-old maid Carmelita Torres would become fed up with all of this, with having to do this especially every week just to go to work every day. On this morning, she was asked by officials to take the bash, but she refused. It got off the streetcar she used to commute to work every day and convinced 30 other women that were on the trolley with her to refuse this humiliating process. By 8.30 in the morning, the crowd had grown to 200 Mexican women who had joined in the protest and blocked all traffic on the bridge. And around 10 o'clock that morning, General Andres G. Garcia would drive his car to the center of the bridge to try and quiet the riders, but however, he only was partially successful as they prevented his car from leaving the Mexico side of the bridge. The scene reminded one of bees swarming. The hands of the feminine mob would claw and tear at the tops of passing cars. The glass rear windows of the autos were torn out, the tops torn into pieces, and parts of the fittings such as lamps and horns were torn away, was reported by the El Paso Times on this riot. By noon, several thousand men and women have now joined in on the protest, and some even laid down on the trolley tracks to keep them from entering the disinfestation plants. Now, with the trolleys all at a standstill, these women these women would take control of these trolleys. One of these trolley men tried to retreat to the United States side of the border, but ended up having four riders, up to four riders, cling on to him to try to keep him from making an escape back to the United States side and beating him. Another trolley man did hide in a Chinese restaurant on the Mexico side of the border just to be avoided getting beaten by these women, seeing after what happened to the first one. General Francisco Marguea showed up with his death troops, as they were known as, because of the skull and crossbone patches that they wore on their uniforms. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, they were a, cal- a cavalry division. They were sent in to help quell the female rioters. Even with their sabers drawn, these women showed no fear against the death troops and jeered and hooted before taking on the death troops and overpowering them. When the U.S. immigration and health workers tried to disperse the crowd, they were met with a volley of bottles, rocks, and insults. By that afternoon, it was made clear that nobody was harmed in the bat that were currently in the bass, and the crowds finally decided to disperse by after the mounted cavalry soldiers on the United States side and the Mexican the Mexico side of the border showed up, despite rumors of somebody being shot. January 29th, the riots continued, but it was, here is where it, mo- it was mostly men at this point, and these rioters used this to take advantage to protest against the Carenza regime and voicing their support for revolutionists. Pancho Villa. Here is where one laborer would be taken to a nearby cemetery and killed by the general's men after he shouted Viva, Viva Villa mm-hmm. for in support the show of Pancho Villa and what he was doing in Mexico at this time. 
With the migrant workers not coming in after two full days, business owners and household households without laborers would consult with the local chamber of commerce of El Paso to resolve this issue at the border, as most are refusing to come to work at this point. Officials will clarify those who aren't infected can pass without having to bathe, and their certificates would be valid for a week. Just a week? No, it was like eight days to do it, so might as well. It's basically still just a week. <laughs> These riots lasted for three days total, and at the end of January 30th, 1917, after two men and one woman were arrested for assaulting a customs officer and a soldier on the American side, and no other violence was reported after this. This one woman was arrested would end up being Carmelita Torres, the 17-year-old that started all this. Mm-hmm. And her whereabouts were unknown after she was arrested, as historians cannot find anything other than her being arrested, and that's it. Trail just drops off from there. They don't know if she was ever released. She was killed later on in jail for starting this riot or anything. That's it. That's all I know. Like, there's no... They don't even have any pictures of her of any type. Even with the riots... Carmelita Torres would be hailed as the Latina Rosa Parks for her actions. Her name soon would be forgotten that this infestation process would continue on, and over 100,000 Mexican immigrants, either for work or for a better way of life, would still have to go through this process in 1917 alone. Even though some of the things I didn't mention earlier would be added after these riots, like the literacy test, the list of those to be excluded, but with those changes also, there would be a head tax of $8 equaling to $180. $80 today and having a passport would be required to enter. Between 1915 and 1917, less than 10 people died from the typhus lice that the silk-wearing boxer, Mayor Thomas Lee, and the media milked the fear for all it was worth. And also at this time, the people of El Paso had an irrational, irrational fear that the Germans were going to attack to the through Mexico. I try to look more into like the Germans were going to come through Mexico. Mexico to invade the United States during World War One. That's a little far fetched, but okay. Well, you know, it, like World War One, nothing ever happened on that scale at this time and at that mm-hmm. point. So I don't see how I couldn't try and find anything how that got started. Mm-hmm. But it's probably one of those things one person said, and then they told two people, and then they told two people. So now all the city of El Paso is worried about this. The following year, still focused solely on what was coming in from the southern border, but the real threat would actually come in from the within the borders of the United States. Of course it would. What do you think it is? I honestly don't know. So in the first week of October of 1918, 1,300 soldiers stationed at Fort Bliss contracted the Spanish flu. Of course it did. There would be 10,000 cases of the Spanish flu in this population of El Paso's 77,560 residents. By the end of November of that year. So in less than a month's time, 10,000 people out of 77,000 got infected with the Spanish flu, which came over f- from Europe because of World War I. Mm-hmm. Even after this typhus scare, Mexicans crossing into the United States would still have to go through the de-infestation process, whereas the hydrogen cyanide would later be replaced with a cheaper, commercially produced Zyklon B which would be used for much darker reasons than pest control in the 1940s after a German doctor, Gerhard Peters, wrote an article for a pest control journal including photos of the fumigation chambers, the gas chambers where the clothing was kept at the El Paso plants, Mm -hmm. and his report included how effective Zyklon B was used for killing lice suggested this practice for their concentration camps for similar pests. But 
we all know what actually happened with Zyklon B. For those that don't. Zyklon B was the gas that was used to kill 6 million Jews during World War II. Okay. I figured they could piece that together, but just, right. just in case they can't. Right. That was the one little fact that fucked my mind for over an hour into thinking about that something that we did to kill bugs basically almost erased an entire human race so that in roundabout way we almost could be responsible for that but we also aren't because we weren't using it for that some other sinister motherfucker decided to use that for it instead but going moving on from that and i'm not trying to ignore that it happened mm-hmm it's one of those things like the Girl Scout cookie episode. Yeah, about, I know. About to lose my shit. <laughs> but anyway, these border disinfestation practices would be carried on during World War II with the Brasero program where migrant farm workers would come into the United States while U.S. men were off fighting the war. These workers would be sprayed down with a white powder known as dichlorodiethylene trichlorethane, or DDT. How the hell can I say that? I I have no clue. <laughs> I can say that, but I had a hell of a time last year trying to get the word physician out. <laughs> it's all right. Or what other word that was in previously in this episode that I had trying to get out and I was like, that. Oh, the, the. Rick, Rickettsia? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. These farm workers were sprayed in the face in private areas with DDT after stripping down, and they were also treated like livestock during the inspection process and were never told about how dangerous DDT was, how dangerous DDT could be on the body, and these migrant farm workers called it Apovo, which is the powder. Sorry, I don't I don't have many remarks for this because I'm... I, I'm I could tell annoyed. because you've been silent all the way through this <laughs> one so far, so I'm just like, oh, she's going to have a lot to say at the end of this. So high doses exposures to DDT short-term wise can cause vomiting, tremors, shakiness, and seizures. Long-term effects to DDT have been linked to breast cancer, lymphoma, leukemia, pancreatic cancer, diabetes, decreased sperm quality, spontaneous abortion, impaired neural development in children, and is also has been associated with asthma and chronic bronchitis. So literally everything you don't fucking want. Yeah. An early onset of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. DDT would actually be banned in the United States in 1972 for agricultural use and other developed countries would soon follow suit after the impact it has been having on humans and wildlife after it broke down to DDE. For, and for some unknown reason, it is actually pronounced the same exact way as DDT as it's losing its hydrogen chloride bond due to evaporation into the air and water. Even the staff at Socorro, Texas, where a lot of this DDT deinfestation was going on, weren't even aware of how dangerous it was. As Ines Franquez, Franquez Ignacio said that when she worked there as a clerk, she would recall that her that some of the staff never gave very much thought about it when they were being told they were being disinfected for lice because at this point it was just a common thing going on on the United, you know, the southern border of the United States, but they did think it was very much like what the Nazis did to the Jews during the war mm. because of the head shaming and the delousing process and whatnot. Mm-hmm. When the Brasero program ended in 1964, health officials finally acknowledged that DDT was dangerous and the fumigations and baths would finally come to an end. Even today, we still see the same fear-mongering narratives being spun on the news networks about those coming into the United States wanting a better life 
being looked at as Tom Lee did in 1917. Yeah. You ever have moments where you're like, God, I wish I was an American. Like, this yeah. is one of, like hearing this is one of those moments. And when like, we fucking suck. Mm -hmm. History is written by the victors on what happened. And you have to go dig deep in the shadows if, to say to find the truth. Yeah. When some of the videos I did watch on this, I did look through comments to see if anybody had mentioned anything about grandparents, great grandparents and so on and so forth about having to go through this. Uh, there was actually a school teacher that was in there that said he has gotten so much pushback from administration that trying to teach this to students. Well, yeah, because America doesn't want the people of this generation to know how fucking awful we are. Right. It's that simple. That's really annoying. I'm annoyed. I know, because as quiet as you were, because you usually have some kind of smart-assy answer to something, you literally had nothing at all this entire episode. Mm -mm. I, the, I don't know how you didn't know, see me over here going. No, I can see you shaking, shaking your my head, head constantly. Constant. <laughs> and <it> just, <laughs> yeah, like, ugh, I'm over it. Yeah, so like this has been <clears> on my list forever, <throat> and then I looked at my list getting ready for this week. It just popped out on me. It's like, I'm going to do this, and then it was just a whole lot of, what the fuck? What the fuck? And yeah, I didn't quite understand with what you, like, the very tiny bit that you told mm -hmm. me without giving me actually what the story was about. Mm -hmm. And then just the amount of times that I kept hearing, like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. Like, I couldn't, right. I didn't understand. I understand now. Right. What the fuck? That's all I got to say. The use of fear mongering and whatnot, like, the millions of people that passed through this, even during the... This typhus outbreak, only 10 people, 10 mm -hmm. people out of the 100,000 people that passed through in one year died from I'm out of that. It's just insane that how people use fear mongering for such things. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Surprise. I'm not being the bright and shiny this week. No, you, you weren't. <laughs> Jesus. It can't be the macabre emporium for bright and shiny for half an episode one time. Yeah, I know. What? I wasn't ready for all that. No, I knew you weren't. <laughs> I didn't. I knew you wouldn't be. Yeah. On that note, I think it's time to close the Emporium for the day. Yeah, she's stealing my shit again <laughs> before I could even get it out. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> Me too. Since you stole that part, why don't you steal the rest of it? Until next time. Remember to creep it real. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Here, got it. We're back to normal. <laughs> Please go and check out our website at macabemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on TikTok at Macabre Emporium Pod. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. If you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime or weird history that you would like us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabemporiumpod at gmail.com. And remember to follow, rate, review, and share whenever and wherever you can to help us grow our podcast.